Ever had a stupid question? Well, we're here to answer it. Welcome to This is a Stupid Question, but I'm your host, Mahnoor. And I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where we find all our smart answers to all our stupid science questions. And today, our stupid science question is, what is cancer? Which in itself is a huge topic. (laughs) Probably should have been maybe a hundred separate podcasts but that's fine (laughs) we've struggled a lot to condense this into something that makes sense but also gives you some interesting facts and details at the same time it was really hard to choose what fun facts excludes like I felt really stressed about it because they were all such fun facts (laughs) I know I feel like we wanted to tell you everything because it's all so cool and interesting but we we had to prioritize so would you want to give us like an explanation of Um, the structure of this podcast so what we're going to talk about today cool yep so today we're tackling cancer and we've we're going to talk about the biology of cancer what it is um we're going to talk about the history so throughout the years what have people thought cancer is before we had all these amazing techniques to actually look at the cells even and then we're going to look into why we get it and is there a cure is there a magic cure to this disease Mm mm-hmm Big questions. Spoiler alert, not yet. (laughs) In case you didn't know, in case you've been living under a rock. In case you think (laughs) the government has the cure, they don't. (laughs) So before we get into the science of cancer and start answering our questions, we need to define some important terms and differentiate between different tumour types. So for instance, we have benign tumours and malignant tumours. Malignant? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Malignant, isn't it? Oh, well, I'm Scottish and I say things differently. Fine, we'll stick to malignant. <laughs> I'll try my hardest. <laughs> malignant. Malignant, it's the same. Right. It, yeah, like, it's it probably is okay. Like, I don't yeah. know. I've just Everyone never heard that. Everyone knows what we're talking about, right? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> a benign tumour is a tumour which is basically a growth of cells which isn't invading different parts of the body. And in most circumstances, um, they're, they're, they're fine. Like, they're not going to cause any... Um, adverse effects unless they start pushing against organs and that's when we want to dissect them and remove them by surgery but cancer is when these tumors become malignant or malignant <laughs> as i call them and that's when the proliferation of, of cell growth is so uncontrolled that the cells start to spread and they start to metastasize the different parts of the body and that's when we call the tumor a malignant cancerous tumor Exactly. And that's when we have cancer, okay? So when we're talking about cancer and talking about tumours, we're almost definitely talking about malignant tumours. But we will specify whenever we mention a benign tumour. Exactly. Okay, I think we should just get right into it because I'm really excited to hear the science that you've been studying. We've not actually discussed this with each other, so we've been really excited. Exactly. We're so excited to hear each other's fun facts. This is, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm so excited. Okay, cool. So let's start off with the biology of cancer. So what is cancer? Cancer is a disease of uncontrolled cell growth. It's when cells continue to grow without any end in sight, really. And normal cell replication is important for just our physiology. It's important for repair. It's important for maintenance. It's important for growth. Cancer takes that replication and just goes haywire on it. And the reason that occurs is because of the genome and getting mutations in the genome. So our genome is defined as the DNA is another way where people will talk about it, your chromosomes. So inside each cell is a nucleus and inside each nucleus you have chromosomes and you get 23 from your mom and 23 from your dad. And if you stretch out the DNA in one cell, it's about two meters long. So it's really long and packaged into something that you basically can't see and it's made up of about three billion base pairs and by base pairs i mean it's made up of four letters in a way it's the code and the specific sequence they're in will define the gene and the function of our genes is to produce proteins so these genes and their expression and their correct expression is really important for how a cell functions and we have about twenty thousand genes in our dna And the rest of it is known as junk. But we're realizing now that a lot of that junk DNA might have a non-junk function. (laughs) Un-junk, wow, that's a great word. (laughs) I thought it would be cool to give you an idea of the degree of how many mutations we just get by existing. 
not mm-hmm. to freak anyone out. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it'd be cool. So I read this uh, article in The Atlantic, which I loved because it was part sarcastic, part disbelief, and part science, which I think is a great mix. Oh, oh yeah, like, I feel like that sums up my brain. <laughs> exactly. Like I love when people give me information like that. And the title of the article was called Your Body Acquires Trillions of Mutations Every Day and It's Somehow Fine. And you do. So our DNA replication process is quite efficient. It's not the most efficient if you consider like all organisms that exist, but you know, it's quite good. We've made it this far. And with each cell division, even then you'll get about 10 mutations. So if you have trillions of cells that are replicating, you're getting trillions of mutations each day. This is baseline. So if you go outside, you're exposed to UV light, and that's a mutagen. If you go on a plane, you're exposed to cosmic rays, mutagen. Um, If you drink alcohol, mutagen. Um, Pollution these days in big cities, Mm -hmm. mutagen. So essentially, you existing is racking up even more mutations on top of the trillions of mutations that you're getting in general just by sitting still. So is this where the idea or the, you know, the common phrase comes from that you get cancer every day, but it doesn't turn out to be anything bad? Exactly. Yes. So it's not, it doesn't have to be you're getting cancer every day because it depends where that mutation is, right? Mm -hmm. But you are racking up mutations and some of them do have the chance of being cancer. So, and I like this line from um, the article. So, are you horrified yet? Good, me too. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Not to worry anyone. Like, it's totally normal if, if you know. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. So, think of the fact that we're getting trillions of these mutations and we're not all walking like bags of cancer. So- See, that's the thing that cancer, although it's so common, it actually is really rare. It's, exactly. it's a rare thing to get a, a cancer growing you know it's not that you get one mutation and bam you've got a tumor you yes. need all these builds up of mutations and that's what we're starting to understand exactly so if so we have these trillions of mutations every day and now you're thinking why don't we have cancer then so we have a lot of so first of all the majority of these they're not going to do anything to you and there's specific reasons to that one of them is the junk dna i mentioned or it's in genes that you know, don't, aren't expressed in the cell, for example. So every cell in your body isn't expressing all 20,000 genes at one time. Also, we have some evolutionary mechanisms to protect us from cancer. We have repair mechanisms. We have proteins, enzymes in there that are, you know, our surveillance system. They're walking, they're not walking. (laughs) (laughs) We like to imagine them walking around. I like like to imagine them literally like tiny security guards looking out (laughs) for... mutations so these guys these enzymes are repairing um any mutation that comes about if somehow the surveillance systems don't notice it there's an issue it will just kill itself and that's Mm -hmm. the apoptosis so it has it you know sacrifices itself to prevent that cell from passing on the mutation to daughters takes one for the team and obviously our immune system it will detect any issue if it can Mm -hmm. And kill that cell again, just to prevent it from passing on that mutation onwards. So there's a lot of mechanisms in place that if even if the mutation is harmful, or even if it isn't, sometimes it will still fix it. So a very, very, very small percentage of them are actually going to impact you and have the ability to give you cancer. And just to add, an even smaller amount are actually beneficial to us. And the article I read was like, this is why we don't have superpowers. Damn. (laughs) So mutations are the reason you get cancer. And like Amy said, exactly. It's not one mutation that's going to do it. And scientists have have been, you know, trying to figure out how many mutations does it take to give you cancer. And I read this article by the Sanger Institute. And they said it's about one to 10 mutations that can, you know, put the cancer into place. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, doesn't mean that you, that would be a cancer sale. Exactly, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're talking all in terms of chance and probability and risk here. Mm-hmm. Uh, average 1 to 10, and it depends from cancer to cancer. So I think it's important to say that when we're talking about cancer, we're talking about an average between all these different types. But if we were to look at each one specifically, the stats change. So fun fact, when we're talking about these mutations, we're talking about somatic mutations, which means mutations in your body cells. 
And 90 to 95% of all cancers are somatic, which means you cannot pass it on to your offspring. 5 to 10% you can, and that's because the mutations in the sperm or the egg, also known as your germ cells. But germ cells have, are, have an even better rate of resisting mutations. And again, that might be some form of evolutionary mechanism mm-hmm. to stop us from passing on these mutations, which I think is quite cool. That's really cool. And like, it just shows you as well that cancer, not only is it random and like a disease of age, but it also can be in your genetic history. You having the gene for a specific cancer, literally known as a cancer gene, <laughs> um, <laughs> will obviously increase your risk. But again, mm-hmm. that doesn't guarantee that you're going to get cancer, but it does dramatically increase your risk more so yep. than other risk factors. So I've talked about the mutations, but so you're like, okay, so there's a small fraction of these genes. What are these genes? What do they do? Why do I get cancer from them? And now we go to one of my favorite papers, The Hallmarks of Cancer. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and it's by Hanahan and Weinberg. And I think we should all be impressed that I know this reference because I am horrible at remembering <laughs> references. This is an important one, though. This Could is an that. important <laughs> one, and I've read this paper enough times to know this reference by heart. The take-home message from the review is you can actually, there's specific hallmarks for cancer for defining it as a cancer. And since their 2001 to 2011 review, they added emerging hallmarks and enabling characteristics and that's something that we both work on the new bits the fun new bits (laughs) so obviously I can't I'm not going to go into too much detail about the hallmarks of cancer because we'd be here for forever but to touch upon them so the first one is sustaining proliferative signaling and to that I refer you to proto-oncogenes or when they're mutated they're known as oncogenes and with them is evading growth suppressors, which are tumor suppressor genes. And I think if you've done A-level biology, you, you kind of remember mm-hmm. these names. And the analogy they used to teach us is the car. Do you remember that analogy? Um, it was like the brake and the accelerator. Yeah, yeah exactly, okay, okay. Yeah. So the proto-oncogene is the accelerator. And if you think of it in terms of the cell, if your proto-oncogene is expressed, it's driving cell replication forward. Mm-hmm. Tumor suppressors are the brakes, they will stop it. And there's a fine balance between these two for every cell type that is replicating. So obviously for cancer, if the proto-oncogene is mutated, it's just the foot's on the gas and it's just going forward. There's nothing stopping it. That's never good. No, it's gonna no, crash. No, it's going to crash. Exactly. <laughs> and then the tumor suppressors are the brakes. And if you think about it in terms of the cancer cell, its brakes are broken. They're just not working. Nothing's stopping it. So those are the two. I think the when you learn about cancer, those are the two main hallmarks you always learn about. And then I was surprised, to be fair, when I learned there's more. And I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> this is cool. So those are the two. And then you have activating invasion and metastasis. And metastasis is looking at how a cancer spreads in the body. Do they just want to, you know, go and get as many resources as possible to just continue dividing and replicating? Mm -hmm. So that's another hallmark of cancer. Another one is enabling replicative immortality. And not going to go into too much detail on how that works, but the idea is that for any specific cell that's dividing, it kind of has a lifeline. It has a specific number of cycles it can go through before it goes into a stage known as senescence, where it stops dividing and just exists. Mm -hmm. And cancer cells override this, so they become immortal in a way, and they just continue dividing and dividing and dividing. (laughs) So when I was 12, I read about this, and I was like, okay, I got the cure to cancer. Just, you know, stop that. (laughs) Oh, well done, (laughs) Manoa. No one's ever thought of that before. (laughs) I did three days of research on Wikipedia, and I was like, I got this. It's fine. Wow. So that was your first ever publication. That is when you became a scientist. <laughs> no, so I, I found the cure and then I just was like, okay, fine. I know it. Cool. <laughs> I won't let anyone know. <laughs> like when I get, when I grow up and I go to the lab, I'll tell them about my idea. Are yeah. you still holding it back? Are you, what are you doing here? Are you just playing games? <laughs> In hindsight, very simple. Everyone's tried it already. Not, mm-hmm. not working. Not working. <laughs> I was like, just stop and just, stop it from being immortal like it's not that hard guys 
like that's the thing in theory like we could just stop it but it's not it's cancer's confusing it's complex and it's smart exactly and we'll go into the evolution of cancer Mm -hmm. as well which is i think fascinating that's the thing it's like the perfect example of evolution you your body and the drugs we give it are able to kill the ones that is are sensitive to killing to death and then the ones that are more resistant start to grow and then you have this really and now you have a more aggressive cancer exactly Mm because you've tried what's in your arsenal and it's just it's like no like Mm -hmm. that's not your best shot i always think about it as like an army so you send out your 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 weak soldiers with not as much armory oh yeah they're 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 killed first and then the ones that are left are the stronger ones they've got the big guns you know it just leads (laughs) out to the best ones exactly which may which obviously is why cancer is such a deadly thing um but yeah it's it's fascinating at the same time and we'll go into the evolution of it as well um so yeah so enabling replicative immortality inducing angiogenesis angiogenesis is the uh, is the process of creating blood vessels and obviously as this tumor grows bigger it's kind of cut off from the blood supply of the organs and for it to replicate and produce more cells it needs access to glucose for example and other building blocks to create more cells and one of the mutations it can have is in genes that are responsible for uh, creating new blood vessels but that's one way that people are looking at um, targeting cancer is by stopping it from creating blood vessels and kind of just you know cutting out its supply but again exactly. not e- not as easy as it looks <laughs> 12 then, year olds minor would have um, thought differently but anyway literally also like guys just like stop it it's not <laughs> come on <laughs> and then the last one that was the original hallmark is resisting cell death so i talked about apoptosis and how that's something that will get triggered if the cell detects that something is wrong and obviously cancer will um, try to evade that. And then the emerging hallmarks are deregulating cellular energetics, which is a fancy way of saying it's altering its metabolism because its metabolism needs to change to favor replication, producing new molecules all the time, whereas normal cells don't really mm-hmm. need that. And then the other one is avoiding immune destruction. So our immune system, and that's that's Amy. That's fine. <laughs> um, immune cells, obviously, are surveillance system of our entire body, and these guys need to the cancer cells need to be really good at hiding from them. And in some cases, which is the enabling characteristic, they will use the immune system to favor their growth. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they exploit different systems to either inhibit the immune system killing them, or they use characteristics of the immune system to yeah, like promote. Um, angiogenesis metastasis that kind of thing insane so Uh if we go with the army analogy they're basically bribing the immune system oh yeah and yeah and the last one last enabling characteristic is genome instability and mutations so like i said and this goes in this is a great segue into the evolution of cancer so i talked about one to ten mutations that a cancer needs so the idea is it's not like ten mutations in one go and cancer it's it will get one mutation and it doesn't do much it's it's just there it's a bit of an inconvenience maybe but you know not cancer and then its daughter cells will have that mutation and one of those daughter cells will get a second one and it's one of its daughter cells will get a second one so you get this like diverging tree mm-hmm. like evolutionary tree of cells until there's one daughter cell that's just got that perfect combination of mutations that will allow it to initiate cancer and you know activate all these hallmarks of cancer but that it doesn't stop there it's not like 10 mutations and you're done otherwise it would be a bit easier i think that daughter cell so that cell let's say with 10 mutations will now divide and one of its daughters will have one mutation and its other daughter will have another mutation both still cancer cells and that will continue and what you get is a tumor where not all the cells are identical. They will have different mutations, which is insane. I know. And like such an important part because with even within your tumor, everything's different. And one cell might die because of the chemotherapy you give it, but the other one doesn't. And it's, yeah, it's just wild. So evolution of the cancer is quite important in understanding drug targets and looking for specific aspects of cancer to target. Because if you can hit that, origin mutation that would be much better Mm -hmm. so i think cancer is a really good way of looking at evolution on a very small time scale 
yeah survival of the fittest survival of the fittest so I've got a question then and I think this is something that I used to struggle with before I understood cancer and I think a lot of people will what what is actually killing us then okay so we've got this big lump but why is it killing us that's actually a really good question thank you (laughs) so in some cases it's where the lump is growing could have an issue best example is the brain Mm -hmm. and and in some cases it's this thing is a leech so it is not just taking resources it's diverting them away from you and it's taking up all your resources and using just to grow itself and I think that is the main reason that cancer is so deadly Mm -hmm. that it will invade every part of your body and just well not every part depends on the cancer but it will invade your body and just take all the resources so your actual cells that are trying to keep you alive don't have the ability to do so they don't have the glucose or all the other molecules and chemicals that you need to survive the cancer is just taking them all up for itself and I think that's that's the main reason yeah and like um I guess that's the difference with benign and malignant like you can have a little tumor growing on you like I have a tiny one on my leg a little benign tumor and that's not going to yeah I know so cool what no I didn't know that it just looks like a large freckle, but it's t- <laughs> <laughs> it's just a freckle, isn't it? <laughs> it's not a freckle, okay? It's a benign tumor. <laughs> and, but that's not going to do any harm because it's just a, a mistake. It's just a little growth. But with the malignant ones, they are, they're evil. They want to steal resources and they want to keep growing and take over the body. They're basically colonizers. <laughs> yes, perfect analogy. So, yes. So we've covered how cancer starts, which is mutations. We've talked about what are those cancer genes and and now the actual cancers so what are the cancers you get and there's four main types of cancers there are carcinomas sarcomas um oh i'm gonna struggle with this pronunciation hematopoietic is that correct i'm gonna give you it (laughs) cool great hematopoietic so hematopoietic (laughs) and neurectodermal cancers carcinomas are the most common so 80 percent of all cancer-related deaths in the west are carcinomas And they Mm -hmm. arise in epithelial cells, which are cells that make up the lining and they kind of line the walls of different cavities and channels. Mm -hmm. And the two main types are squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinomas. And squamous cell carcinoma occurs in epithelial cells whose function is to protect. And adenocarcinomas occur in epithelial cells who have this function of secreting molecules into specific ducts or channels as well. So I thought this will be a fun interactive game, Amy. Oh, God. <laughs> where I'm going to give you a cancer and you're going to tell me <gasps> if it's squamous. No, this is not where my field of expertise lies, please. <laughs> it's fine. They're easy. Don't worry. So squamous, just to remind you, is protective epithelial cells. Okay. Adenocarcinoma are uh, epithelial cells that will secrete things into a channel or a duct. Okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, so skin cancer. What do you think? Where does that fall? Squamous. Yes. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Pancreatic cancer. Adenocarcinoma. Yes. Yes. You got this. And then I'll give you one more. Um, the lung. Oh, could you have both? Uh, yeah. Oh my God. That was a, a true question. Yeah. You're officially a cancer scientist. <laughs> Yes, so lung cancer can be purely adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma, or it could be a mixture of both as well. It depends on that cell of origin, which is Mm, cool. I like that. I like that game. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. But yeah, so that's carcinoma. And then Mm. we have sarcomas, which make about 1% of all cancer um, cases. And sarcomas are cancers of connective tissue. So they occur in cells that secrete things like collagen, so your fibroblasts do that, or myocytes, which are which create muscle tissue as well. So sarcomas are a very, very small percentage. And then we have hematopoietic cancers. And this is a type of cancer where you won't get a solid tumor because it's a cancer of your blood cells. And that includes your immune cells as well. So for example, is lymphoma and leukemia. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is neuroectodermal cancers. And neuroectodermal cancers are cancers of your central nervous system, which is your brain and your spinal cord, and your peripheral nervous system, which is the nerves that essentially are not in your brain and your spinal cord. And these make up about 1% of diagnosed cases, but 
they make up 2.5% of deaths. So they're actually quite lethal. And that's, I think that's also because it's so hard to operate on the brain. So you can't easily cut out a tumor in the brain. It depends where it is. So they're very high risk, if you may. Yeah, because if you cut it out, you might then damage other parts of the brain. But yeah, and then there's types of cancers that don't fall into this four categories. So melanomas, which are cancers of melanocytes that are pigmented cells in your skin and your retina and teratomas. So I didn't know teratomas were a thing. I feel like I've seen teratomas before, but didn't know what they were. I think my first um, time hearing about a teratoma was in Grey's Anatomy episodes where the man came in and his wife was pregnant. And then he also looked pregnant, but it turns out he had a huge teratoma. Oh my God. Okay. So annually about 100,000 cases, quite rare. And most of them are benign. They're not going to have any function, uh, any severe impact. They can be cut out. Um, but a very, very small fraction of them. And those are those tend to be called immature teratomas. Um, they are malignant and they can be life-threatening. And what teratomas are, are so we're going to go into the embryo. And when a sperm and an well, that's not what an embryo is. That's a zygote. When a sperm <laughs> and an egg fuse, they form a zygote, and that will develop into an embryo and fetus onwards, right? Mm-hmm. And those early cells are known as pluripotent. So these cells have the ability to form every tissue in your body. So they're responsible for making the fetus, right? And a specific subset of these cells will go on to become your germ cells, which are your sperm and your egg. And it's just known as your germ cell precursor. And sometimes it will, while it's, you know, going to where the sex organs are supposed to be, it just doesn't get there, it gets lost. And it attaches ectopically and it will start dividing and it can form a teratoma. And because the cell has the ability to form every tissue in your body, teratomas are this mix of tissues where it can have hair and teeth. Teeth, Uh uh-huh. Oh my God, it has teeth. (laughs) Please, everyone, just Google teratoma. (laughs) At your own risk. (laughs) Well, Well, yeah, look at them because they're insane. And I read about, okay, so there's this thing, there's a theory about specific teratomas. They're known as fetus in fetu, I think. Um, And the idea is the teratoma that they find in some babies might actually just be an undeveloped fetus that the other babies, you know, absorbed because it just couldn't grow properly. So the other baby just took it up (gasps) and it became a teratoma. So basically, like, you could have your twin inside you? Yes, but it was underdeveloped. That twin didn't have a chance of survival. And for some reason, the other fetus just absorbed it and took it in. But what I found really cool is they're wild type. They don't have mutations. They're like a somatic cancer cell would. But because they're pluripotent and they have this ability to grow, they're just this malformed tumor. But it can be malignant. But yeah, it's, it's crazy how there's a type of cancer that has wild type genomes. It's crazy that there's a type of cancer that has teeth in here. (laughs) (laughs) That too. And I think that's a good place to stop on the biology of cancer. I think the next best thing is to learn about the history of cancer, Amy. That's where, you know, I'm so excited. Okay, cool. Well, so before we get into the history, let me just disclaimer. The history of cancer literally spanned millions of years and it was really stressful to choose the best um, things to tell you guys about. If you want to learn more, obviously read more about it. There's a brilliant book by Siddhartha Mukherjee um, called The Emperor of All Maladies and that's pretty much the biography of cancer. So the history of cancer is a difficult one because we often think of cancer as a kind of modern disease or a westernised disease and that makes sense because it's a disease of age so it's more common in um, populations with a longer life uh, life expectancy. Also, things have changed recently. We have more environmental factors, which are important. And then the the other issue is um, back in the good old days, technology wasn't as good and diagnosis wasn't as good. So now we're much better able to diagnose cancer and also um, to determine what kind of cancer the patient has compared to back in the day. So where does my earliest evidence of cancer begin? So, Manor, as you know, (laughs) humans are not the only species to get cancer. Where do you think my earliest evidence begins? Dinosaurs. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, my God. That's so cool. (laughs) I know. So, 
I never actually like knew about this until I started researching. So there was this paper, and basically they looked at ten thousand different um, vertebrae of fossilized dinosaur bones, and they looked for evidence of cancer, right? And what they found is that one particular dinosaur type called the hadrosaurs had a lot of benign tumors in their vertebrae. And one particular um, dinosaur of this type, Edmontosaurus, was the most common to have these benign tumors. And also it had evidence of malignant tumors. So that's really cool. Obviously, we only have dinosaur bones, so that's all the evidence we could get from that. But yeah, dinosaurs had cancer. Um, so they then go through history and people have pathopaleontologists, they're called. They like dig up bones and mummified corpses and they do autopsies on them. And we start to find evidence of um, cancer in other mammals. For instance, the Homo erectus. So it's like the earlier stages mm-hmm. before our um, humans as we know them today. They found a jawbone which had signs of a lymphoma, which is endemically found in southeastern Africa. So yeah, like I said, I can't go into all, but there's loads of evidence of mummies from Egypt and stuff having signs of cancer. But where was the first written evidence of cancer um, from? And that's from a scroll which is believed to be written by Imhotep, who was not just an Egyptian physician, he was also an architect and he dabbled in astrology. But, you know, as you do. Yeah, back in the day, everyone did everything, didn't they? Yeah, no, like, I wish I was a scientist back then. It's not fun. <laughs> so, yeah, Imhotep is believed to have written this scroll in which he had um, examined 48 different cases of different ailments, ranging from broken bones, sore spinal injuries, and cuts in the skin. But it's case 45 where we think the first written evidence of cancer in humans um it's from, so I'm just going to read out what they believe the translation of Imhotep's scroll um, is for case 45 because it's just, it's so fun. So under examination, it was really well structured. They had the examination, diagnosis, treatment. Anyway, examination. If thou examinest a man having tumours on his breast, thou findest that swelling have spread over his breast. If thou puttest thy hand upon his breast, upon these tumours, thou findest them cool. There be no fever at all. Therein thy hand touches him. They have no granulation, they form no fluid, and they do not generate secretions of fluid, and they are bulging to thy hand. He later then says, it's like touching a ball of wrappings. The comparison is to a green fruit, which is hard and cool under thy hand. That's actually that sounds like cancer. quite articulate. <laughs> yeah. He then goes on to diagnosis. <laughs> so in the diagnosis section, he tells oh, you what he would this. say to the patient. Okay. Thou shouldest say concerning him. One having tumours, an ailment which I will contend. <laughs> One having tumours. <laughs> Imagine you went to your doctor and it was this dramatic. Anyway, treatment. So in all four eight cases, there was like different ranges of treatment. A lot of putting honey on the ailments to, to solve the problem, as you do. But for case 45 and what we think is cancer, treatment section said there is no treatment. If thou findest tumours in any member of a man, thou shalt treat him according to these directions. So, no treatment. (laughs) Do this. There is nothing to do. There is nothing to do. Actually, that was really cool because, like, as we know, throughout history, there's all these, like, um, old wives' tales and um, ancient medical um, treatments that they use for different ailments. But with this one, Emotep was like, nope, there's nothing. But obviously, we, we, we have so many treatments now, but we still don't have, like, one cure. And this was back... This, sorry, I forgot to mention the date. This was back in 2600 BC. I thought you were going to say 2006. <laughs> <laughs> no. We go through history and we have different um, evidence of lots of different regions around the world examining and diagnosing what we think is cancer and giving different treatments. But we then get to um, Greece. And this is in 400 BC. And this is where Hippocrates is believed to have um, started off a lot of the modern medicine teachings. He's known as like the father of modern medicine. So he was a Greek physician and he is believed to have coined the term carcinos, which is the Greek word for crab. Okay, And he believed that cancer, the way it attaches to its holes, the blood vessels, it resembled how a crab digs into the sand with its claws, which... Yeah, right. That is true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was later translated into the word um, cancer, which is Latin for crab. 
So Hippocrates is also famous for this um, humour theory of how illness starts. And again, that needs its own podcast. So I'll just give it a really brief introduction. He believed basically that the body is made up of these four humours. So we have red blood, black bile, yellow bile and white phlegm. And he said that illness occurred when there was an imbalance in one of these humours. So, for instance, if you had jaundice, it was believed that you had too much yellow bile, which would make sense that you were yellow, you know. Inflammation was um, too much red blood. Again, you can see where that comes from because when you have an, a cut or something, you have this huge influx of blood and it goes red. But it was believed that um, an imbalance in black bile is what, caused um, cancer. Also caused depression, which is interesting. It's a fun fact. So Hippocrates um, developed this theory and thought that black bile caused cancer. Um, following in from his work, another Greek physician, Claudius Galen, in 160 AD, he said that um, to treat cancer, you had to restore the balance of this black bile. And he invented this like way of purging the blood <laughs> to remove the black bile. And he said that as soon as you take out the black bile, it comes straight back. There's no cure, basically. He said it's best left untreated. People will survive longer if you not treat this. Um, Which is tumor. what cancer does, right? You cut it out and it will mm -hmm. just tend to come back. Uh -huh. Also, the fact that he said that your patient would live longer if you didn't treat them is probably down to the fact that as soon as you started cutting them out, you would get infections <laughs> and they would die from sepsis. So <laughs> Back then, it wasn't the most sterile of procedures. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so we go through time with all these random treatments popping up. <laughs> and some of my favourites range from treating with pasted eye crab's eyes. We have uh, evidence of goat's dung, crow's feet, tortoise liver, fox's lungs. You know, like there's just letters from all over the world. Garlic pops up a lot. Yeah, garlic's a big one. Um, when you were saying that list of animal things, it sounded like a Harry Potter spell. So it's not a spell. Sorry, a potion. Oh, we got to be specific. Yeah, a potion. Yes. But basically, this black bile theory persisted for hundreds of years for a number of reasons. But it wasn't until modern medicine and modern um, science that we started to understand exactly what cancer was, like you told us about. But all these, throughout time, we have all these emergence of different theories. So we have the theory that cancer was contagious and people should be quarantined because we don't want to catch cancer. Trauma could cause cancer. We had the theory that bad lymph in the lymph um, system could cause cancer. So I'm going to now skip thousands of years i'm now going to talk about modern medicine and where we started getting the most scientifically sound ideas about cancer okay we've got in 1775 percival pot was the first person to discover an environmental cause for cancer and what he seen was that um cancer in the scrotum was a lot more common in chimney sweepers right uh-huh and cool. basically there's a lot of carcinogens in the chimney suit so people who were chimney sweeps were getting this um, scrotum cancer, which was caused by these carcinogens. So he was the first one to say um, this is an environmental cause. We then jumped to 1863, where Rudolf Ferkel was the first person to see immune cells in cancer sites. So I'm sure we'll also talk about uh, the immune immunology of cancer, please, because, you know, that's oh, where we definitely. my obsession lies. <laughs> that's just going to be all Amy. Yeah, <laughs> basically me ranting. But basically it was like, not until recently that we believed the immune system has a huge role in cancer. But it was all the way back then that it was first noticed that we seen immune cells in the cancer tissue. We have in 1886, Hilero de Govia um, showed the first evidence of there being a genetic link in cancer, and this was in glioblastomas. Um, we have the first origins of immunotherapy in 1891 with William Coley, who used bacterial toxins to treat cancer. Again, deserved its episode. <laughs> <laughs> We have Marie Curie and Marie Curie who develops radiation and this was so important for development of diagnosis. So they made x-rays, they also developed radiation which is still a standard treatment for cancer. She deserves an episode. Oh, she's great. <laughs> um, then in 1911, we have the first evidence that an infectious disease could cause cancer. And this was in chickens. It was Ruse sarcoma. And he's seen that this virus could induce um, sarcoma in chickens. Obviously, since we have other um, viruses like HPV, human papillomavirus, which most of uh, most girls um, now should be vaccinated against. And that's an important um, virus which causes um, several cancer. 
Now, this is one of my favourite stories about um, the history of cancer. 1944 was the first FDA-approved chemotherapy, but it came from nitrogen mustard. So, I don't know if you know, nitrogen mustard, yes, important gas used in the war to kill people. (laughs) But what they've seen... mm -hmm. And I I was just going to say that it... I think it's important to add that a lot of these drugs that were used to kill cancer are very, very toxic. That's oh, yeah. uh-huh. how intense this thing is. It's not an easy thing to kill. Like, we, like, of course, the perfect cure for cancer would be would also kill every cell in your body. So you don't want that. That's the thing. They're so toxic. It was noticed that soldiers returning from the war had really low um, white blood cell counts, so your immune cells. And it was realised that this nitrogen mustard was killing these proliferating cells. So it was used to then treat um, blood cancer that you talked about. Oh, wait. So it was a um, weapon first. and then... Oh, yeah. Oh. Weapon come cure. We then have, in 1953, was the first complete cure of a solid tumour. 53. That's not that long ago. Complete cure. Oh. Uh-huh. Um, and then we have in 1971 Nixon declaring President Nixon declaring war on cancer and this was really important for how the funding went into cancer research etc etc again could go on for hours and I've missed out so many important people and so many important um, scientific discoveries but I can't go on for hours talking about this (laughs) but that's where we get to um, with the history of cancer and what we know now basically how do we get to what Manor was telling us about so why don't you now tell us about how we get cancer? Like, what are the what are the risk factors for cancer? So, do you want me to go conspiracy first, or give me or give you actual risks first? Actual risks, and then we'll debunk the conspiracies based on actual risks. <laughs> cool. Okay. So, in general, so I'm gonna all my stats are from Cancer Research UK, and they published these in 2015, where they did like a big study, and in the UK. 38% of cancer cases are preventable. Yeah, I've seen that and I was like, that's wild. Insane, right? right? So 38% are because of these risk factors that I'll go into. And in general, in the UK, the survival is about 50% for patients that are diagnosed. So in terms of risk factors, age is the biggest one. So a third of the cancer cases diagnosed in the UK are in people age 75 and over. And 53% of the deaths are in people age 75 and over so aging is a i think the biggest one and that kind of ties into what we said about you're just accumulating mutations randomly over the years and if you've lived longer you've accumulated more mutations you've been exposed to more mutagens and risk factors and that will just increase your risk of getting cancer and i think it's important to add that these are cancer risks it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that you know you're guaranteed cancer if you've been exposed to a certain risk or you haven't been, or you can easily just live the healthiest lifestyle and still get cancer. These are all probability and risks because mm-hmm. it's a mutation surviving and then another one surviving and another one surviving. But yeah, so age, genetics is a big one. So I think the most well-known genetic cancers are breast cancer and um, retinoblastoma. So genetics play a big role and those will obviously dramatically increase your risk of getting cancer. So for example, a lot of women with uh, with the breast cancer BRCA2 gene will get um, mastectomies way before there's any diagnosis as a preventative yep. measure. So smoking is, I think, one of the biggest preventable risks. Oh, it's the leading... It is indeed. Yep. Mm-hmm. It is the largest cause of cancer in the UK, so 15%, and worldwide, it's 33%. So a third of all cancer cases worldwide are due to smoking. It is without a doubt a carcinogen. When I remember in the beginning when I read about, I think it was an emperor of all maladies, mm-hmm. how for the longest time people were like, no, smoking, it's fine. Yeah. It's, it's a correlation, not a causation. And it's a causation, people. It is. <laughs> it is. I think in the book he describes like, one scientist um, presenting his um, data and his evidence about smoking and, then <laughs> and he... all the doctors and the crowds were like puffing away like nah he's talking rubbish exactly. I'm going to tell you smoking <laughs> exactly but it is and I know there's always that one person who's like yeah but I know someone who's been smoking for years you know since they were born to well not since they were born but <laughs> like from not. early ages to like and now they're really old and they don't have cancer so smoking doesn't cause cancer and that's a exception and like I said this is a risk 
but mm-hmm. it will definitely increase your risk more than just don't smoke just don't it's smoke. also just disgusting and like smells bad so just don't smoke <laughs> it's not good for you um yeah phys- so other risk factors physical activity so a lack of physical activity and this ties i think a lot of these go into like lifestyle risks so lack of physical activity um drinking alcohol having a very poor diet these days like in the society we live in the um obesity and just general overweightness is a huge risk factor in cancer from what actually, studies i've seen mm-hmm. i actually read that obesity may overthrow um, smoking as a leading cause of cancer in the next 25 oh, wow. years oh, yep didn't know that yeah so mm-hmm. obesity is definitely emerging as a very big risk factor um and then the last one is infection that i have and we got asked this yesterday on why cancer is not con- uh, why cancer is not contagious and cancer is not contagious because it depends on you acquiring specific mutations but you getting infected with something can increase your risk of cancer so infections can do that so an example like you said is hpv mm-hmm. um they will increase the risk of cervical cancer when i say increase the risk it's a very small fraction generally eight out of ten people it will have zero symptoms and if they does show symptoms it's like um, skin warts or genital warts but in very very small cases it can cause cervical cancer and I was just going to say that I looked into this because I wanted to see how effective the vaccine was. Yeah. And there's this huge meta-analysis done from like more than 60 studies, 14 countries. So in the age groups of 13 to 19, um, f- four years after vaccination, the, um, the infection rate was down by 70%. And in 15 to 19 year olds, the rate of precancerous cells like you would see from pap smears was down by 50 percent oh my god so get vaccinated people if you mm-hmm. haven't but yeah so hpv another one is helicobacter pylori is a bacterium and it is it infects the lining of your stomach um and it will it increases your risk of stomach cancer as the cases of h pylori have gone down the number of cases of stomach cancer have also gone down in the uk at least but where this bacteria is quite prevalent obviously the cases will be high. Again, it increases your risk. It doesn't guarantee stomach cancer. And also, I thought I'd ask you this. So we talked about how cancer is not contagious, but mm-hmm. there is one, and I wouldn't say contagious, is, I'm going to using the, using this term very, very loosely, but there is a specific case where you can transfer cancer from one person to another. Do you know what that would be? <gasps> is it, oh, is it in transplantation? Yes. So organ transplantation or tissue transplantation. So these stats are from the National Cancer Institute and about two in 10,000. So very, very rare. Two in 10,000 organ transplantations might lead to the transfer of cancer. Wow. So I I just just like to assume that before you get your transplant, like the organ is checked for cancer. Yes. But if it's it's not seen, if there's cells there present, then that's when it could lead to tumor formation. Exactly. And people with a history of cancer are not obviously favored for organ transplantation because of this because it can increase the risk of cancer transmission yeah like i didn't even know that could be a thing Mm -hmm. but yeah so those are general risk factors that will except for smoking the risks and genetics and age (laughs) (laughs) anything else no i think that's it the risks are you know on your day-to-day life you're fine don't worry about it um but they, it, there is a risk. There is an associated risk with it. So those are. Do you know? Mm-hmm. I was going to add something that I think is a risk and is a really important risk, and it's like the socio-economic factors, right? Yes. So basically, it's um, surveying who gets cancer and who dies of cancer. It was found that not only do people from poorer backgrounds are more likely to um, die of cancer. And this is probably due to the fact that their um, their lifestyle maybe isn't as healthy and also diagnosis isn't as easy for them. They maybe not get access to good healthcare and also good treatments, right? Mm-hmm. But they also found that mortality of cancer is highest in African-American males. Basically, what this is saying is that it's not just as simple. Patient A gets a cancer, patient B gets a cancer. And they get the exact same treatment and they get the exact same healthcare and everything's fine. Like all these societal factors come into play. Racial discrimination. Racial discrimination. Gender discrimination. Also, oh, yeah. Um, sexual orientation discrimination. Mm-hmm. Like discrimination in the healthcare system will 
impact your survivability which is um shocking shocking (laughs) Uh unfair is such a simple word to put it to but yes it's it that in itself is such a big risk factor um okay and now just briefly risk factors that aren't risk factors but people will go around (laughs) telling people it's a risk factor and I think the biggest one I hear about a lot is GMOs or genetically modified organisms okay the bananas you eat people (laughs) are are GMOs why did you why did you choose bananas (laughs) Because when people talk about GMOs, they talk about, you know, the big strawberries or fruit that's Mm -hmm. out of season. And they're like, oh, no, that's a GMO. I'm not going to eat that. And I'm like, but everything you eat is kind of a GMO if you think about it. Bananas, especially. Every banana you eat is a GMO because they're all clones of one Mm -hmm. single banana. GMOs will not cause cancer because there is no link. They're They're just organisms. We've actually had a request to do a podcast on GMOs and different chemicals in our food chain. Oh, oh, we're definitely doing that. But (laughs) in general, it does not cause cancer. And these days, 5G is a big thing. Oh, God, no. (laughs) I feel like I don't even want to address it because it's so stupid. But 5G or people who say cell phones or microwaves or power lines give you cancer. Those energy waves being radiated are low frequency they don't do anything to you for radiation to cause mutation it needs to have a lot of energy it needs to be like a bullet that hits your dna yeah these that's the thing with like even radiation therapy like of course the radiation therapy could pose a risk of cancer but what the treatment that we give is so low that it's it's high enough to kill the cancer and it's directed at the cancer, but it's still so low that the risk is so low. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, I thought you'd love this one. I read that stress causes cancer. No, like, I'm not debunking it. I'm not debunking this because I feel like stress is linked to all these bad lifestyle. That's exactly where I was going um, with this. Issues, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so stress itself will not give you cancer as far, like, as for now, we don't have a link between them. But a lot of people cope with their stress by drinking, by eating an unhealthy diet, by not exercising. And those are obviously established mm-hmm. risk factors. And last one, because this the study that tried to say this is a risk factor was stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for lack of a better word. And stupid is a accepted term on this podcast. But yes. no, not this. <laughs> um, and moisturizers are a cause of cancer. Moisturizers. And let me tell you the study that tried to, you know, be like, oh, moisturizers. They gave mice a bunch of UV, like they exposed them to a lot of UV light. Oh, I forgot to mention UV light, big risk of skin cancer, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, wear your sunscreen, people. <laughs> so uv they exposed these mice to like high amounts of uv light and then put moisturizer on them and we're like moisturizer causes skin cancer what it's like Can you guys, send me that because that sounds wild i'm gonna send it to you it's like guys maybe it's the uv light i don't know do you have a control do you no that's the thing of science you always got to have a control and it has to be like a huge um, we have to have a lot of data before we confirm things and you'll even find like with us right now we'll be like this me cause or this me because we're not going to say anything is yeah, absolute on this nothing, podcast nothing is absolute and a lot of things you find is like oh this one person drank this lemon juice and then a cancer disappeared okay well where's your control with the no lemon juice and where's your control with the no cancer <laughs> and where's your meta-analysis of all these people running about drinking lemon juice i want to see that before i can be convinced exactly oh this reminds me of this not related to cancer but i'll tell you um you know how people say like cracking your knuckles gives you arthritis oh yes so this one person he like cracked his knuckles on one hand only for like a good <laughs> few decades and he's like see it doesn't cause cancer sorry arthritis and I'm like, at least you had a control. That makes sense. <laughs> Your other hand. <laughs> Your other hand. I like that study. It's quite a good but control yeah, as I well. I think we should um, definitely do a podcast on sound scientific evidence and controls. You know? Yeah, because w- I've been guilty of forgetting a control a lot. Yeah, but not to the stage where you start claiming lemon juice cures cancer. No, that, no, not at all. You know, (laughs) and like, I think another important thing to take into account is how the media portrays science and maybe 
maybe one paper has seen that if you um, treat cancer cells in a dish, which is not a human body, in a dish with this drug, the cancer cells died, then that paper will be published as that is in, in vitro, we call it, in the mm-hmm. dish. The cancer cells dies when you give them this treatment. Then you go on the news, not any particular news source, you go on the news and suddenly treatment X cures cancer. Yeah, exactly. And then and- you go on Facebook and Karen has, you know... <laughs> decided that treatment X is the cure for her cancer. So, yeah, we're not, like, discounting anything, but there's not enough evidence. To be fair, if you just leave that dish outside, those cells will die. That's not... But I can't just be like, oh, go breathe some air. (laughs) It will cure your cancer. (laughs) It was like that meme I sent you. And it was like, yeah, but also a bullet kills the cancer cells. It was like a little scientist shooting his petri dish. (laughs) Exactly. So you don't trust in vitro stuff. Well, no, you don't trust it in terms of this is the cure for cancer. But you need to do the in vitro stuff to take it in vivo into animals. And we will definitely have a discussion on Mm -hmm. animal research. On that note, should we go on to... Is there a cure section? Yes, Amy. So is there a cure for cancer? So my overall answer is yes, no, maybe. Okay, (laughs) That's actually a really good answer. (laughs) But to explain that, I'm going to break it down, right? So in terms of biology, if you think about it, every cancer is different between patients, right? So if we both were to have melanoma, my melanoma is totally different from your melanoma just because it's made up of the cells that our body's made up, right? Just how cellular makeup's different, so is our cancer. And that's because everyone will acquire their own sets of mutations that will present itself as a specific cancer, but it's it's genetically different. Exactly, right? So the patient variation lies there. Then we'll take it into, let's just look at patient A. Right? Patient A has melanoma, but they also have colon cancer, for instance, right? These two cancers are also totally different because of these mutations that build up in the different tissues and also the tissue architecture is totally different. So what a tumour is made up of in the skin is totally different from what a tumour is made up of in the colon. And that's in the same person. And that's in the same person, okay? Even, for instance, a primary tumour, so your original tumour, can vary from the metastasis, which happens at a distal part in the body. They're from the same original tumour, but they can totally vary. But then we'll dive even further into how um, cancer varies and look at an individual tumour. So say the melanoma on the skin in patient A. And within this tumour, there's also variation. We've talked about this already, but how the cancer cells evolve. So you can have one cancer cell, which is sensitive to chemotherapy, but it's a cancer cell right next to it is totally resistant. So you kill all these sensitive cells with your chemotherapy and allow all these resistant ones to grow. And that's why you often find relapsing in patients. Patient A and patient B walk into the clinic. They both have melanoma and the doctor gives them the exact same drug. Patient B just doesn't respond. It's not happening, right? So let's kick them out of the picture. They're not responding. <laughs> now we'll look at patient A. Chemotherapy's working. Her melanoma's shrinking. All is good. But then, like I've said, all the sensitive cells are starting to die and you're starting to get the growth of the resistant cells. So months go by and patient A thinks the melanoma's shrinking and then suddenly we get this relapse and, and the tumour starts to grow again. Now what we have is this really aggressive tumour which is resistant to chemotherapy. Okay? Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying here <laughs> is that curing cancer is so difficult because of how diverse cancer is between patients, how diverse cancer is between cancer types. So I think we have over like 100 different cancer types, right? They all vary. And then even within the tumour itself, we have variation. Exactly. Like you- okay. People who generalize cancer as one disease, it's not It's not one disease. It's, it's an umbrella term for over 100 diseases. So I think what I'll do now is talk you through different kinds of cancer treatments that are standard today. And then we'll talk about this precision medicine, which is where the cancer field is going. So standard treatments, of course, surgery, cutting out the, the tumour. And this only works if the tumour is able to be resected. So if you have a tumour which is deep in the body and it's surrounded by loads of important blood vessels and parts of the tissue that can't be touched, then you're not going to be able to resect your tumour. We also have chemo- chemotherapy and radiation. Again, I think these deserve their own podcast. They're going to the history of their development because they're both really interesting. But they both, in general, cause damage to DNA of proliferating cells. And this is what kills the cancer cells. 
We have targeted therapies, which um, target the specific mutations which occur in cancer cells. We have hormone therapy, which aims to stop the um, proliferating um, outgrowth of cancer. And then we also have immunotherapy, which of course is my favourite. And of course, I'm going to do an episode on. <laughs> oh, we're definitely doing one on immunotherapy. Oh, yeah. This is basically where um, we try to stimulate the immune system to attack the cancer and, and the patient's body, which it should already be doing, but it's failed. Okay, so we have all these treatments and they might cure certain patients with certain cancer. But what we're finding now is that every patient is different. There's all this variation and also that we get this relapse in cancer after the sensitive cells die. So we have two routes which cancer treatment is going down. We have combination therapy, which is where we choose drugs or we use more than one drug to kill the cancer cells. And what this means is you're coming at cancer from two different angles. So you're killing cells which are sensitive to one treatment and also killing cells which are sensitive to the other treatment and you hopefully end up killing most of the cells. And then the other route, which is the really promising one, but we will discuss it, I think, in detail, is personalised medicine. And this is basically, it's also called precision medicine. And this is the idea that patient A and patient B walking into the clinic again, instead of the doctor saying, okay, here's treatment X and you both take it and see what happens. They would take the patient separately. They would take a sample of their tumour, sequence the tumour, and this gives us a readout of all the different mutations that are involved and also the different um, cells, including the immune cells, which um, lie in the tumour microenvironment, which is what we call the tumour. What they then get is this overview of what this patient's tumour looks like. We can then choose specific drugs that will target these specific mutations and also work well with the um, patient's immune system and genetics, that kind of thing, okay? And we can also choose different combination therapies that we think are going to work. And then as the patients are being treated, we're taking samples of the tumour each time and we're seeing is the tumour evolving. Do we need to tweak the treatment um, combination that we're giving this patient? And we keep going like that until we have a cure. Now, that sounds perfect, right? But obviously... The world is not perfect. <laughs> There's a lot of things we need to consider. Now, in theory, in the long run, this would save like a lot of money because you're giving the, the patient the ideal treatment for their cancer and you're not wasting money and time and resources on a treatment that's not going to work. But it involves a lot of investment. You need to like treat every single patient with cancer, which is like millions of people. Yes. You have to treat them separately. You have to sequence their genome. You have to keep track of their cancer. It's just, it's not feasible right for now, the vast majority least. of people. Yeah, yeah. right. It's and only going to, these um, socioeconomic discrepancies are going to come into play in this, right? If you have someone who doesn't have ex um, access to the best healthcare, they're not going to be able to have this personalised medicine compared to the other person which has the best private healthcare, exactly. right? And also, I guess, you can you can check for the mutations that everyone has, but then you just might not have the drug for their mutated protein mm -hmm. either. So we need to increase our arsenal of inhibitors and, and knowledge yeah exactly to target all these mutations but yeah. it, in theory i think that's where cancer therapy is is headed and that seems like it would work ideally the cure to cancer will be personalized cures for personalized tumors in each individual that ends the cure on our maybe cure on cancer and because this the stats that we've given are quite <laughs> depressing. Um, I think it's important to appreciate the fact that cancer research and cancer therapy has come a long way since, mm. you know, the four humours that... Oh, even before that, from Imitep's thou potential <laughs> treat with no treatment. <laughs> no treatment to, like I said, there's a 50% survival in the UK right now, which is yeah. a lot. But again, average cancer. So um, chronic myeloid leukemia, for example... And by creating a targeted inhibitor, I think they increase survival from about 6% to 86 or 84%, wow. which is huge. So it's gone from something that was more or less a death sentence to a manageable disease in people. Obviously, resistance has come about, but scientists are working hard to catch up to that resistance. But it's a huge improvement to 6% survival. So I actually have some stats like this as well. So from... 1971 to 
Prostate cancer has went from an average 10-year survival rate of 30% to 88%. Uh, breast cancer has went from 50% to 84% and melanoma from 50% to 90%. So from Imateps, there's no treatment to we have loads of treatments. We just now know how, need to know how to use them. Exactly. And the, the fact that we are able to work our way towards personalized medicine is something you know we couldn't do years ago when for example sequencing genomes was so expensive but now Mm -hmm. it's relatively much cheaper so we're we're heading on the right track yeah so to end should we just summarize what our take-home messages are yes have we answered what is cancer (laughs) i think so well obviously there's i think if there was a tip of the iceberg to cancer we've only done the tip of that tip of that iceberg Oh, yeah. There's a lot to learn. But I've, I hope that gives a good idea of what cancer is, what stage we're in now, what stage we were in before. But if if people zoned out, Amy, what's one thing you wish they take away from this episode um, today? That dinosaurs had cancer? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Um, if they zoned out and they're now just catching up, <laughs> I'd like to think that they would take home that cancer is a very complex disease, it's an umbrella term for hundreds of diseases, and that we have multiple cures, but we need to know how to use them. Exactly. And I guess my take-home message would be that if you see a cure to cancer, or you see any drug, or you see risk factors, like take everything with a pinch of salt. Don't believe Facebook, I'd say. Don't believe Karen on Facebook. (laughs) Don't believe Karen on Facebook, who's on about the cure to cancer. Cancer, at the end of the day, is a very random disease. So thank you for listening to our <laughs> first you. official episode. Oh, so stressed. I hope they enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing like a PhD in cancer sciences, but I learned a lot today, you know? Yeah, me too. This is this is fascinating. So Amy, social media. Yes, give us a follow on Instagram at this is the stupid question, but and on Twitter at T-I-A-S-Q-B. You can email your podcast suggestions to this is a stupid question, but at gmail.com. And a quick shout out to Cameron who made our fabulous jingle. You can find him on Instagram at prob underscore music. And tune in two weeks from now. So our episodes are going to be fortnightly where we look for smart answers to the stupid question. Do we actually need to wear sunscreen? So we shall see you then. Okay. Bye. Bye.